Chapter Eleven of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Eleven. Tarzan becomes a beast again. For a moment, Werper had stood above the sleeping ape-man, his murderous knife poised for the fatal thrust, but fear stayed his hand. What if the first blow should fail to drive the point to his victim's heart? Werper shuddered in contemplation of the disastrous consequences to himself. Awakened, and even with a few moments of life remaining, the giant could literally tear his assailant to pieces, should he choose, and the Belgian had no doubt but that Tarzan would so choose. Again came the soft sound of padded footsteps in the reeds. Closer this time... Werper abandoned his design. Before him stretched the wide plain and escape. The jewels were in his possession. To remain longer was to risk death at the hands of Tarzan or the jaws of the hunter creeping ever nearer. Turning, he slunk away through the night toward the distant forest. Tarzan slept on. Where were those uncanny guardian powers that had formerly rendered him immune from the dangers of surprise? Could this dull sleeper be the alert, sensitive Tarzan of old? Perhaps the blow upon his head had numbed his senses temporarily. Who may say? Closer crept the stealthy creature through the reeds. The rustling curtain of vegetation parted a few paces from where the sleeper lay, and the massive head of a lion appeared. The beast surveyed the ape-man intently for a moment, then he crouched, his hind feet drawn well beneath him, his tail lashing from side to side. It was the beating of the beast's tail against the reeds which awakened Tarzan. Jungle folk do not awaken slowly. Instantly full consciousness and full command of their every faculty returns to them from the depth of profound slumber. Even as Tarzan opened his eyes he was upon his feet, his spear grasped firmly in his hand and ready for attack. Again was he Tarzan of the apes, sentient, vigilant, ready. No two lions have identical characteristics, nor does the same lion invariably act similarly under like circumstances. Whether it was surprise, fear, or caution which prompted the lion crouching ready to spring upon the man is immaterial. The fact remains that he did not carry out his original design. He did not spring at the man at all, but instead wheeled and sprang back into the reeds as Tarzan arose and confronted him. The ape-man shrugged his broad shoulders and looked about for his companion. Werper was nowhere to be seen. At first Tarzan suspected that the man had been seized and dragged off by another lion, but upon examination of the ground he soon discovered that the Belgian had gone away alone, out into the plain. For a moment he was puzzled, but presently came to the conclusion that Werper had been frightened by the approach of the lion, and had sneaked off in terror. A sneer touched Tarzan's lips as he pondered the man's act, the desertion of a comrade in time of danger, and without warning, well, if that was the sort of creature Werper was, Tarzan wished nothing more of him. He had gone, and for all the ape-man cared he might remain away. Tarzan would not search for him. A hundred yards from where he stood grew a large tree, alone upon the edge of the reedy jungle. Tarzan made his way to it. 
clambered into it, and finding a comfortable crotch among its branches, reposed himself for uninterrupted sleep until morning. And when morning came, Tarzan slept on long after the sun had risen. His mind, reverted to the primitive, was untroubled by any more serious obligations than those of providing sustenance and safeguarding his life. Therefore there was nothing to awaken for until danger threatened, or the pangs of hunger assailed. It was the latter which eventually aroused him. Opening his eyes, he stretched his giant thews, yawned, rose, and gazed about him through the leafy foliage of his retreat. Across the wasted meadowlands and fields of John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, Tarzan of the Apes looked as a stranger upon the moving figures of Basuli and his braves as they prepared their morning meal and made ready to set out upon the expedition which Basuli had planned after discovering the havoc and disaster which had befallen the estate of his dead master. The ape-man eyed the blacks with curiosity. In the back of his brain loitered a fleeting sense of familiarity with all that he saw, yet he could not connect any of the various forms of life, animate and inanimate, which had fallen within the range of his vision since he had emerged from the darkness of the pits of Opar with any particular event of the past. Hazily he recalled a grim and hideous form, hairy, ferocious, a vague tenderness dominated his savage sentiments as this phantom memory struggled for recognition. His mind had reverted to his childhood days. It was the figure of the giant she-ape, Kayla, that he saw, but only half recognized. He saw, too, other grotesque man-like forms. They were of Turkaz, Tublat, Kerchak, and a smaller, less ferocious figure, that was Nita, the little playmate of his boyhood. Slowly, very slowly, as these visions of the past animated his lethargic memory, he came to recognize them. They took definite shape and form, adjusting themselves nicely to the various incidents of his life with which they had been intimately connected. His boyhood among the apes spread itself in a slow panorama before him, and as it unfolded it induced within him a mighty longing for the companionship of the shaggy, low-browed brutes of his past. He watched the blacks scatter their cook-fire and depart, but though the face of each of them had but recently been as familiar to him as his own, they awakened within him no recollections whatsoever. When they had gone he descended from the tree and sought food. Out upon the plain grazed numerous herds of wild ruminants. Toward a sleek, fat bunch of zebra he wormed his stealthy way. No intricate process of reasoning caused him to circle widely until he was downwind from his prey. He acted instinctively. He took advantage of every form of cover as he crawled upon all fours and often flat upon his stomach toward them. A plump young mare and a fat stallion grazed nearest to him as he neared the herd. Again it was instinct which selected the former for his meat. A low bush grew but a few yards from the unsuspecting two. The ape-man reached its shelter. He gathered his spear firmly in his grasp. Cautiously he drew his feet beneath him. In a single swift move he rose and cast his heavy weapon at the mare's side, nor did he wait to note the effect of his assault, but leaped cat-like after his spear, his hunting-knife in his hand. 
For an instant the two animals stood motionless. The tearing of the cruel barb into her side brought a sudden scream of pain and fright from the mare, and then they both wheeled and broke for safety. But Tarzan of the Apes, for a distance of a few yards, could equal the speed of even these, and the first stride of the mare found her overhauled, with a savage beast at her shoulder. She turned, biting and kicking at her foe. Her mate hesitated for an instant, as though about to rush to her assistance, but a backward glance revealed to him the flying heels of the balance of the herd, and with a snort and a shake of his head he wheeled and dashed away. Clinging with one hand to the short mane of his quarry, Tarzan struck again and again with his knife at the unprotected heart. The result had from the first been inevitable. The mare fought bravely, but hopelessly, and presently sank to the earth, her heart pierced. The ape-man placed a foot upon her carcass and raised his voice in the victory call of the Mangani. In the distance Basuli halted as the faint notes of the hideous scream broke upon his ears. "'The great apes,' he said to his companion. "'It has been long since I have heard them in the country of the Waziri. What could have brought them back?' Tarzan grasped his kill and dragged it to the partial seclusion of the bush which had hidden his own near approach and there he squatted upon it, cut a huge hunk of flesh from the loin, and proceeded to satisfy his hunger with the warm and dripping meat. Attracted by the shrill screams of the mare, a pair of hyenas slunk presently into view. They trotted to a point a few yards from the gorging ape-man and halted. Tarzan looked up, bared his fighting fangs, and growled. The hyenas returned the compliment and withdrew a couple of paces. They made no move to attack, but continued to sit at a respectful distance until Tarzan had concluded his meal. After the ape-man had cut a few strips from the carcass to carry with him, he walked slowly off in the direction of the river to quench his thirst. His way lay directly toward the hyenas, nor did he alter his course because of them. With all the lordly majesty of Numa the lion, he strode straight toward the growling beasts, for a moment they held their ground, bristling and defiant, but only for a moment, and then slunk away to one side while the indifferent ape-man passed them on his lordly way. A moment later they were tearing at the remains of the zebra. Back to the reeds went Tarzan, and threw them toward the river. A herd of buffalo, startled by his approach, rose ready to charge or to fly, a great bull pawed the ground and bellowed as his bloodshot eyes discovered the intruder, but the ape-man passed across their front as though ignorant of their existence. The bull's bellowing lessened to a low rumbling. He turned and scraped a horde of flies from his side with his muzzle, cast a final glance at the ape-man, and resumed his feeding. His numerous family either followed his example or stood gazing after Tarzan in mild-eyed curiosity until the opposite reeds swallowed him from view. At the river Tarzan drank his fill and bathed. During the heat of the day he lay up under the shade of a tree near the ruins of his burned barns. His eyes wandered out across the plain toward the forest, and a longing for the pleasures of its mysterious depths possessed his thoughts for a considerable time. With the next sun he would cross the open and enter the forest. There was no hurry. There lay before him an endless vista of tomorrows, 
with naught to fill them but the satisfying of the appetites and caprices of the moment. The ape-man's mind was untroubled by regret for the past or aspiration for the future. He could lie at full length along a swaying branch, stretching his giant limbs, and luxuriating in the blessed peace of utter thoughtlessness, without an apprehension or a worry to sap his nervous energy and rob him of his peace of mind. Recalling only dimly any other existence, the ape-man was happy. Lord Greystoke had ceased to exist. For several hours Tarzan lolled upon his swaying leafy couch, until once again hunger and thirst suggested an excursion. Stretching lazily, he dropped to the ground and moved slowly toward the river. The game trail down which he walked had become, by ages of use, a deep, narrow trench, its walls topped on either side by impenetrable thicket and dense-growing trees, closely interwoven with thick-stemmed creepers and lesser vines inextricably matted into two solid ramparts of vegetation. Tarzan had almost reached the point where the trail debouched upon the open river bottom when he saw a family of lions approaching along the path from the direction of the river. The ape-man counted seven, a male and two lionesses, full-grown, and four young lions as large and quite as formidable as their parents. Tarzan halted, growling, and the lions paused, the great male in the lead baring his fangs and rumbling forth a warning roar. In his hand the ape-man held his heavy spear, but he had no intention of pitting his puny weapon against seven lions. Yet he stood there growling and roaring, and the lions did likewise. It was purely an exhibition of jungle bluff. Each was trying to frighten off the other. Neither wished to turn back and give way, nor did either at first desire to precipitate an encounter. The lions were fed sufficiently so as not to be goaded by pangs of hunger, and as for Tarzan he seldom ate the meat of the carnivores. But a point of ethics was at stake, and neither side wished to back down. So they stood there facing one another, making all sorts of hideous noises, the while they hurled jungle invective back and forth. How long this bloodless duel would have persisted, it is difficult to say, though eventually Tarzan would have been forced to yield to superior numbers. There came, however, an interruption which put an end to the deadlock, and it came from Tarzan's rear. He and the lions had been making so much noise that neither could hear anything above their concerted bedlam, and so it was that Tarzan did not hear the great bulk bearing down upon him from behind until an instant before it was upon him, and then he turned to see Buto the rhinoceros, his little pig-eyes blazing, charging madly toward him, and already so close that escape seemed impossible. Yet so perfectly were mind and muscles coordinated in this unspoiled primitive man that almost simultaneously with the sense of perception of the threatened danger he wheeled and hurled his spear at Buto's chest. It was a heavy spear shod with iron, and behind it were the giant muscles of the ape-man, while coming to meet it was the enormous weight of Buto and the momentum of his rapid rush. All that happened in the instant that Tarzan turned to meet the charge of the irascible rhinoceros might take long to tell, and yet would have taxed the swiftest lens to record. 
As his spear left his hand, the ape-man was looking down upon the mighty horn lord to toss him, so close was Buto to him. The spear entered the rhinoceros' neck at its junction with the left shoulder, and passed almost entirely through the beast's body, and at the instant that he launched it Tarzan leaped straight into the air, alighting upon Buto's back, but escaping the mighty horn. Then Buto espied the lions, and bore madly down upon them, while Tarzan of the apes leaped nimbly into the tangled creepers at one side of the trail. The first lion met Buto's charge and was tossed high over the back of the maddened brute, torn and dying, and then the six remaining lions were upon the rhinoceros, rending and tearing the while they were being gored or trampled. From the safety of his perch Tarzan watched the royal battle with the keenest interest, for the more intelligent of the jungle folk are interested in such encounters. They are to them what the racetrack and the prize ring, the theater and the movies are to us. They see them often, but always they enjoy them, for no two are precisely alike. For a time it seemed to Tarzan that Buto the rhinoceros would prove victor in the gory battle. Already had he accounted for four of the seven lions, and badly wounded the three remaining, when, in a momentary lull in the encounter, he sank limply to his knees, and rolled over upon his side. Tarzan's spear had done its work. It was the man-made weapon which killed the great beast that might easily have survived the assault of seven mighty lions, for Tarzan's spear had pierced the great lungs, and Buto, with victory almost in sight, succumbed to internal hemorrhage. Then Tarzan came down from his sanctuary, and as the wounded lions, growling, dragged themselves away, the ape-man cut his spear from the body of Buto, hacked off a stake, and vanished into the jungle. The episode was over. It had been all in the day's work, something which you and I might talk about for a lifetime. Tarzan dismissed from his mind the moment that the scene passed from his sight. End of chapter 11